Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth podcast. She Reads Truth creates beautiful, accessible Bible reading plans and resources to help you get into God's Word every day. Each week here on the podcast, we talk about what we're going to read together as a community this week. I'm your host, Rachel Myers. And I'm your other host, Amanda Bible-Williams, and this is week one of our Prayer in Scripture series. You all, we have Tyler Staten with us today. Tyler is the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He's also the national director of the 24-7 prayer movement in the U.S. He lives in Portland with his wife, Kirsten, and their three boys, and he has a new book that just released last month called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, and we're going to get into a little more about what that means. This is a really great conversation to frame this new study that we're all entering into today. And I think you're going to find it really helpful, really encouraging, also convicting and challenging in the ways that we need to be convicted and challenged. I think you're going to find it super valuable. So let's get right to it. Tyler, welcome to the She Reads Truth Podcast. We are really, really happy that you're here with us. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. Well, we are starting a new reading plan called Prayers in Scripture, which you just happened to have released a book on the topic of prayer just last month. And we have been really excited to, Mm. I'm going to use a phrase that I don't actually love, pick your brain (laughs) about the topic of prayer because it is so vast, it's such a vast topic, so we're excited. Yeah. Okay, I have a question for you as we start. Your book is called sure. Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, which is yep. a fantastic title, by the way. <laughs> and the subtitle is An Invitation to the Wonder and Mystery of Prayer. Why those two words, wonder and mystery? Yeah, I chose those words because I think that prayer is the spiritual life at its most personal and its most painful. And you can't really separate the two. At the end of the day, you know, we never get to taste what eternity will be like more than we do when we pray. It's the place that we connect with God deeply relationally. It's the place that our intimacy is developed with God. If there's a romantic side to the spiritual life, and I think there is, prayer is probably the most heightened experience of that. And so most people cultivate intimacy with God most greatly through prayer. Most people experience God's power most greatly through prayer. Most people's stories that define their spiritual life, that they go on telling, like those three to five moments over the course of their life, involve answer to prayer or some experience in prayer. And most people's most painful moments in their spiritual life come from prayer. It comes Hmm. from asking God for some type of intervention and just encountering silence, which is actually more painful than a no. You know, if if it's kind of like, well, if God would just say no, there would be a context for ongoing conversation. Maybe I could understand why the no. And But silence just feels like God might not be listening, or maybe if he is listening, he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And when that thing that I'm talking to him about is deeply personal to me, and I feel like I'm speaking into a void, then there's pain. And it's difficult to square that pain with the character of the God that we meet on the pages of Scripture. So there's mystery there. And I think as human beings, we would love 
if God was formulaic, you know, if he worked more like a slot machine where we knew exactly what we were going to get out based on what we are putting out, like a vending machine. Mm-hmm. But of course, God is relational. And that means that God comes closer than a formula could ever come. But it also means that God can't entirely be pinned down <laughs> to be fully understood. It's kind of like I've been married for 11 years and I will be married to Kirsten for the rest of my life. And I will never eliminate all of the mystery in that relationship. I will never know her so well that I have her entirely figured out and she can no longer surprise me or hurt me. And that's what it's like with God. We never Mm -hmm. reach the end. We never eliminate the mystery in relationship. So prayer opens our eyes in wonder and prayer causes us to hang our heads or shake our heads in mystery. And that is the tension that all of our prayers get prayed between. Hmm. Yeah, goodness. I think there's so much of that. We see that in Scripture, you know, and in our own lives, of course, like you just described, and also in Scripture, like you can't, I mean, aside from Jesus saying, pray like this and giving us what we call the Lord's Prayer, the examples of prayer in Scripture are kind of all over the map. Mm -hmm. And what happens as a result you know, like what we would call an answer to prayer, whether it be a no or a yes or a wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're right that even if we, I would assume, I've never tried to actually do this, but if I tried to make a formula out of that, there's not a formula to be found. Yeah, It's actually one of the things that frustrated me as a younger believer, and this is not, I think there are tools that we use that can be really helpful, so I don't mean to diminish any of that. But, you know, when I was a younger believer, I was given different formulas for prayer, you know, like the acts prayer or the pray prayer, where like it's, you know, adoration, mm-hmm. confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And and then that's just one example. And I don't think that's bad. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that frustrated me was that there was still mystery left, even when I did it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, wait, but I'm right. I'm doing it, quote, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I still feel like there's some kind of either distance between myself and God, or my prayers aren't as effective as I'd hope that they would be. I'm not as effective a prayer, Mm -hmm. you know, like I feel like a lot of times that I'm just sort of feeling around in the dark. And so I think it can be a really frustrating part of our faith. And so to hear you say that it's actually one of the deepest parts of a believer's experience with God. I agree with that. I also want that, you know, like I long for that. But it is, it is, mystery is a great word for it. I completely agree. I think that a challenge that all believers face is to constantly take prayer out of the framework of results because that's typically how we begin to pray, as we pray to get certain results from God and to take it out of that framework and put it into the framework of relationship. Yeah. And when you put it into the framework of relationship, it's good. then of course communication is the central place of delight and work in any relationship. Mm. You know, friendship, yes. communication is the space of delight in a friendship. It's where I enjoy the person I'm getting to know the most. And it's work. It's the place that I have to 
put in time, put in effort. It's yeah. the place I have to make myself vulnerable. It's the place that I have to say that I'm sorry. It's the place I have to say I forgive you. It's the, you know, there's work involved in communication and every meaningful relationship requires hitting the point where the delight runs into work mm-hmm. and then continuing on to that's do the right. work mm, in that good. relationship. You know, like an acronym like ACTS or PRAY, like you were referencing, I think is a great tool for learning to yeah. pray because it broadens the scope of prayer from just one method, right? Yes. Most people have one way to pray. Depending on your tradition, I pray requests or I pray contemplatively or I pray by reciting scripture, you know, whatever was the first way I was taught to pray. Yeah. And use an acronym like that to say, well, when I pray, I pray adoration, and then I confess, and I bear my soul to God, and then right. I use the weapon called gratitude to give thanks, mm-hmm. and then I come with requests. That's a beautiful model for learning, yes. and you'll experience delight in it at first, and then you will hit the work. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. at that point that you can really learn to pray mm-hmm. and really get to the riches of prayer, but not without kind of going through the wall of yeah. Man, there's a slog of relational work I have to do with God to get there. I think that is incredibly helpful to hear mm. as someone who has, for whom prayer has felt like work, that that actually is A, to be expected, mm-hmm. and B, to like frame it in when I'm, you know, talking to my friends or my children or my husband. And we're having a hard time communicating. We don't just stop communicating. I mean, ideally, right? Mm-hmm. If the relationship is important to us and we love the other party in the relationship, then we find a way to keep going. Mm. And that is when, I mean, Rachel, you and I have even had, Absolutely, you know, because we, yes. we, we've been close friends now for a decade. And so there have been times where, and we communicate very differently. Yes. So that means that communication is, you know, when we hit those walls and we have to figure that out and work through that, when we are on the other side of it, there is like a depth that wasn't present before. And what's so cool is that that continues, the payoff keeps going. That's right. Because then we've learned something about communication. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really helpful to put that kind of just real-life logic Mm -hmm. (laughs) and apply it to our faith because I think sometimes we think that we can't use logic in our faith. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. I think that that's freeing to acknowledge. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to say at this moment to those who are listening that this idea, like I, I remember one of the best friends I've ever had when I was first developing a friendship with him 15 years ago. I remember the first time we butted heads and we both had to say like, ah, you're rubbing me the wrong way in this way. And you said this and And then we kind of, we reconciled and he said, all right, man, now we're on our way. And and Mm. what he meant by that was now we're beginning to build an actual friendship Um, Mm. because when you hit conflict or mystery in the other person, by which I mean, you're not who I thought you were and you're not delivering to me what I thought you were delivering. Like my ex, you are not matching my unspoken expectation. That's mystery, Right. And I have a responsibility in that mystery, and so does the other party. And when that happens, real relationship begins. 
And depending on your circumstance, and I'm speaking to the listeners here, that can either make complete sense or seem a cheap or even offensive. Mm-hmm. Because if the thing I'm working through with God was asking him to get into a particular school, and then I didn't, but I got into like another great undergrad instead, then that can develop deep relationship. But if the thing I'm asking him for is a child, and I've been battling infertility for 10 years, then what we're talking about is like, yeah, great, but you don't know my story. And, right, and yeah. I think I would just want to say, I don't know your particular story, but I know lots of stories like it. And I know that every type of mystery with God isn't the same. They don't all weigh the same. But every type of mystery with God can give way to intimacy if you don't hit the eject button, but you just stay in the fight of prayer. So regardless of how deeply painful or how topically painful the mystery will be, all of us will go through spaces of mystery with God in our prayer lives, which are always invitations to intimacy, but always require more from us than any other place in our prayer lives will. That's good. This is so helpful, Tyler. I'm so grateful. Even just to have this new language to talk about prayer mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. is helpful to me. So this reading plan that we're, the study that we're beginning today, it's three weeks, and we're going to spend three weeks reading narratives in Scripture where individuals or groups or Jesus himself, are praying to God the Father. And so we're going to see the goal is not a how to pray, Mm -hmm. but to kind of open up our eyes to what prayer can look like. That prayer is an invitation, which is another word that you use in your book. It's an invitation. And I think we see that in Scripture, too, because God chose to include so many various examples. Mm -hmm. Like, these aren't all the prayers that have ever been prayed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? But I think that I believe that they're intentionally included. And we're also not going to cover all the prayers, even in Scripture, but just various circumstances, various types of prayer. If you have a study book, you'll see some of the different types of prayer are listed, so we can even learn about that. But in the kind of the front matter of the book, there's an introduction, ask the question, what is prayer? And I will admit that the definition that our team came up with caught me by surprise. Did it you, A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So the definition that they gave is prayer is the practice of talking with God. Okay, I got that part. I knew that was coming, Mm -hmm. right? Through Mm -hmm. rhythms of speaking and listening and That makes sense if I'm thinking about, okay, what is conversation? Well, it's speaking and listening, right? Mm -hmm. But I will confess that a lot of times I don't think of listening as prayer. How would you define prayer? This is not obviously not the definition, but it's a definition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've never been asked that question, which is surprising that As is someone surprising. who leads a national prayer movement and wrote a book on prayer. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think that definition is a good one. I think I might say it even a little bit more broadly that prayer is the practice of communion with the triune God. I like that too. And I think that does involve talking and listening. Mm-hmm. I think it involves 
what's typically called attunement, just the awareness of God's presence as I am neither talking nor listening as my primary activity, right? Attunement means I'm attuned to the presence of God. Yeah. I think most people, when they hear listening, think sitting in a chair in complete silence yeah. with my eyes closed and my hands open on my lap, mm-hmm. which would be like the traditional posture of contemplative prayer. And listening is that, but listening could also be I'm sitting across from a friend at a cafe and I am attuned mm-hmm. to how God is moving in the interaction that I'm having over lunch with yeah. them. And I think that is also prayer. It, it is to live my daily life in communion with Jesus. I think that is something of what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he told us to pray without ceasing. Yes. Yeah, that's good. That's I, helpful. Something that you have written, Tyler, that I like is the threefold foundations for prayer. Will you share that with our listeners? Yeah, I, I think that is in the chapter that I wrote on adoration. Is that what you're referring to? I think to? so. I'll, let me say them to you, and then you can maybe expound yeah. on them. Yeah. Like when you described the threefold foundation for prayer as recovering God's identity, recovering our own identity, and recovering the identity of others. I just thought that was mm-hmm. such a good way to think about Whether that's like, this is the purpose of prayer, or like, this is uh, one of the rewards of prayer. In any event, I I really liked that. Yeah, I think that is the revolution that is bound up in Jesus teaching us to pray, our Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. It's why Jesus got himself into trouble with everyone Mm -hmm. in the way that he addressed Mm -hmm. God. To the Pharisees of his time, he went from calling Yahweh one who is so holy and other that only the high priest can enter his presence and only once a year and always with a rope tied around his ankle in case he dropped dead on the spot, right? Right. One who is so holy that his name is made up of just consonants and a human being, it can't be put into language. And then he has the audacity to call him Abba or Father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's offensively intimate. Yes. And yet (laughs) also... Jesus is making the statement that that means that I am son or daughter, if that's who God is. And that means that everyone else is brother or sister. And so when prayer starts there, it then reframes everything that comes after and hopefully reframes the way I live as I move about the world. Because if God is father and I am son, that changes some things about my inner world, right? That changes... What I think about my worries, it changes my anxieties about today. It changes all those types of things. It changes the source of power in the events of my day that are coming. And then secondly, it changes how I think about all the people I interact with. When I interact with people, I'm interacting with the beloved of God, whether that person is a complete stranger or incredibly familiar to me. And maybe the greatest gift I can give to God is the way that I interact with his other children. I could just say, like, Hmm. as a father of some little kids, when they cooperatively play together, it is is potentially my greatest delight. It's Uh so frequent that I must be involved in the play to maintain order Hmm. between them. But in those moments when, when they're enjoying one another... 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just like sitting back, delighting in them, delighting in one another. Yeah. And so all of that is bound up just in like the first few words of the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Wow. It really is. I love that. This is such a fun study because it's kind of all over the place in terms of like we start out today, if you're listening to this on Monday when it releases, we start out in John chapter 11 with Lazarus's death. And then, you know, and then a couple of days later, we're in Nehemiah, and then we're in Acts, and then we're back in First Samuel. So it's, it's one of those reading plans. It's the fun thing about what we call topical studies that we do here at She Reads Truth, because a lot of times, you know, we read through books of the Bible. Just did Leviticus, um, just did Hebrews. Yes. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we've earned a little time to skip around, I think. And mm-hmm. and so it's it's fun yeah, to... If you guys just cranked through Leviticus, you earned a topical study, didn't you? <laughs> earned. Thank yeah. you. We received we that. that. We and everyone yeah. listening, we're nodding our heads. Mm-hmm. We received that. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> so John 11, Tyler, where... Lazarus dies, and if we've been Bible readers long, we know the story, and we'll read it again this week, that Lazarus was sick. His sisters sent word to Jesus, because they're friends, right, and says, and they know, like, the power that Jesus holds, and they say, your friend is sick. Mm -hmm. Come here. (laughs) And Jesus waits a bit, right? And then he goes, and Lazarus is dead by the mm-hmm. time he gets there. And there's each sister independently says, if you would have been here, he would not have died. Mm-hmm. But we see in this Jesus pray. And mm-hmm. what he says is really interesting. I'm going to start in verse 38 of chapter 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Hmm. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Mm-hmm. There's a lot here, <laughs> mm-hmm. but what's interesting, there's a previous prayer implied here. I thank you that you heard me, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? And then I know that you always hear me. And then his prayer is answered mm-hmm. affirmatively, mm-hmm. right? Yes. We, we can assume he doesn't, we don't hear him say, bring this man back to life, but we see what happens. But this is Jesus praying to God the Father. So like, Tyler, how does this matter for us? Also praying to Jesus and to God the Father. I think when it comes to our prayers, what we learn from this story is that Jesus' prayers for us always precede our own prayers to the Father. Right? Jesus mm. is, is called the great intercessor, which is a common word associated with prayer Yeah. in theological speak, but also in the biblical narrative. And 
Jesus, there's a number of instances in the scripture where we see Jesus praying for his disciples, right? There's this moment of the miracle for Mary and Mary. But then there's also, like, if you think of Peter's denial, when Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him, he says something interesting. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, Hmm. that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. So he's been praying for Peter long before he tells Peter, hey, man, you're going to deny me tonight three times. And he But don't worry, I'll pray for you. Yeah. Or I have already been praying for you. That's, yeah. So it's possible Jesus was never even going to tell Peter that he was going to deny him. But because Peter is so puffed up with, hey, I'll never leave you even if everyone else does, he tells him, actually, you will within the next 24 hours. But I've been praying for you Mm. that when you fall flat on your face and see who you really are and who I've always known you to be, that you would have the strength to believe that I still love you and that you'd get Mm. up and still be the rock that I've been telling you that you are this entire time. And and Mm. so I think that one of the first things that we need to do when it comes to prayer is get in touch with Jesus's prayers for us. And maybe the, the picture of this that has been the most profound to me. And I think this is the best way that we discover God in the mystery that we were talking about before, actually. In The Magician's Nephew, the first installment in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this incredible scene where Diggory, who's the protagonist, he wants, I think it's a story about prayer. It's actually a biographical story for C.S. Lewis, if you know his life story. But He goes to Narnia, and he discovers that there's magic fruit that can heal in this land, and his mom is terminally ill. And so he goes to Aslan, and essentially, who's Jesus, a depiction of Jesus, and says, hey, I am wondering if I could take a piece of this magic fruit back to my homeland and give it to my mom, and she would be made well. And Aslan says nothing. There's just silence. And he's devastated. And there's an interaction that goes on. He works up the courage to go back a second time. And there's still silence. And then it says he looks up at Aslan's face and he's just saying nothing, but a tear is streaming down his cheek. And in that moment, what Diggory discovers is God may not always act exactly the way I think God should act or do what I want God to do. But God is deeply moved by my life and empathetically Hmm. involved in the movements of my life. And we see that in Jesus in this story in John 11, that Jesus, long before Mary or Mary was grieving their brother, long before people were gathered at the tomb, he was in prayer contending for them, knowing, man, they're going to run headfirst into a trial And that matters to me because they're my daughters. And so I am in the secret place contending for them and calling out to them. And maybe one last picture would be helpful just biblically. In John chapter 6, there's that story where Jesus walks on water that is repeated by various gospel writers. And in John 6, it says Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And he's watching his disciples as the storm kicks up on the water. And it says the disciples are straining against the oars. And so we have this picture of Jesus at prayer, 
looking at his disciples in a moment of trial. And it's, to me, has always been a picture of, of Jesus in prayer for me in the midst of mm-hmm. my trial, that he sees me straining against the oars. But one of the great challenges for me is to remember that as I'm doing that, I'm not alone, that I do have an mm-hmm. advocate named Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father and is in prayer for me always. So I think as we begin to pray, whether it's for healing for a sibling who is on their deathbed, like is the case here, Mm -hmm. or anything else, we have to remember that long before this came into my consciousness and I began to pray, Jesus has been in prayer for me for this very moment. Hey friends, interrupting this conversation real quick to remind you that our Advent 2022 collection is live in the shop. You can head to shopshereadstruth.com slash advent to see everything that we have to offer for you this year, including our Advent study book, which is entitled Joy of Every Longing Heart. We are so excited about this reading plan this year. It's so special. There's a legacy book for the guys. There's a 25 card set that you can use to count down the day or display around your home. There's a brand new greeting card set that features those beautiful whimsical illustrations from the study book that we love so much. And if you want to gather the whole family around God's Word this Advent season, we have Kids Read Truth products for you as well. Now, November 14th is the last day to order your products with standard shipping and get them in your hand for the first Sunday of Advent on November 27th. So head to shopshereadstruth.com slash advent. And don't forget... The best way to ensure that you get your Advent book and every new study book we create is to sign up for our monthly subscription box. You can do that at shopshereadstruth.com slash subbox. All right, back to the show. When the answer is not a yes to what we're asking, you know, like Aslan's silence, I think that can feel then like the prayer is fruitless and or uh-huh. like Jesus is not acting, like God is not acting mm-hmm. on our behalf. And so that reminder that He intercedes for us and that He doesn't need our permission to intercede for us is so comforting. Right before the passage that I read aloud in verse 36, so we have verse 35 where it says, Jesus wept, which I think, you know, yeah demonstrates your point that he cares deeply. Verse 36 says, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. Mm -hmm. But some of them Mm -hmm. said, Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? I wrote in the margin, like, there's the rub. Like, that's the the thing. When the, when the answer is a, a no or a silence or a not yet. And I think the challenge for a lot of us is to not let that be the wall that we don't push through mm-hmm. with prayer. To not let that be the end of, not perceive that as the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Of course, this story is also a foreshadowing of what's coming, yeah. of Jesus' own death and resurrection. And so to anyone who may be listening and thinking, well, yeah, but this prayer resulted in a miracle. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. It's important to remember that this prayer resulted in a miracle that was a veiled image of the great miracle that was coming. But 
Jesus also prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And it was not. The cup of suffering was not taken from him. He went to the cross. And Jesus asked his friends to pray with him, and they fell asleep. So Mm -hmm. in his own moment of trial, Jesus felt utterly alone and did not see his prayer miraculously answered, endured the cross, and then there was greater fruit on the other side of his suffering than there would have been had he not suffered. And this is one of the great upside-down paradoxes of the kingdom of God, is that God never promises that we will not endure suffering or face disillusionment or what we define as unanswered prayer. What God promises is that He will redeem our suffering so that somehow the suffering we endure or the crosses we bear in our lives become even more fruitful than if He just worked miracles to cause us to avoid suffering in each and every circumstance. And that is what is being revealed in this story is they're naming the rub of prayer, but then Jesus experiences the rub of prayer. He endures a cross so that when we experience the same rub and we endure the same crosses, we can know that it's still a God of resurrection that we're praying to. And the story has never finished being written if we have a redeemer and not one who just simply keeps us from facing difficulty. Yes. I love that you brought up a couple of things there. First, the prayer in the garden, but also you were talking about this upside downness of the kingdom of God. In the first days reading the supplemental passage, there is from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And as we're having this conversation, I appreciate, Tyler, that you mentioned the prayer in the garden. The same Jesus who shared this sermon on the mount and gave this huge, like, upside-down kingdom sermon is the same Jesus who seemingly asked and did not the door was not opened unto him, right? And like, there's that like mystery. I'd love to like hear your thoughts on that. You know, that passage from the Sermon on the Mount is one of my favorites. I mean, the things that Jesus says about prayer are just yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> the promises he makes right? are astounding. You either have to dilute them or just mm-hmm. pray all the time almost because they're uh-huh, so... Uh-huh. He guarantees things that you're just like, wow, okay, then what what am I doing if I'm not praying? Those three words, ask, seek, and knock, the verbs that are associated with prayer there, they're all written in the present perfect tense in Greek. This is like a nerd moment that matters, meaning that the most direct translation is keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's great. And so it's actually a teaching about being persistent in prayer. And those who are persistent in prayer will inherit the kingdom. And he reminds us of the Father on the other side of our prayers. Why? Because we have to remember God's identity. That's right. Or else we will be tempted to stop asking, seeking, and knocking. 
if we forget the God on the receiving end of our prayers, if we define God by today's circumstances and not who he has revealed himself to be over the long haul, then we'll be tempted to stop. Jesus in the garden kept on asking, seeking, and knocking. God answered his prayer in an even more redemptive way. Right. I mean, thanks be to God that Jesus went to the cross, like on my behalf, right? Right. Right. On the other side of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way, I mean, I would contend, and based on Revelation 5 and 8, which says Mm -hmm. that that a day comes when God tips the heavenly bowl where he collects every prayer and it pours out like a purifying fire on the earth, that every prayer Mm -hmm. that is in line with the will of God is an answered prayer. Some are still awaiting the yes, but when heaven and earth are fully restored and the kingdom comes in its fullness, because it's an upside down kingdom, but it's also an already not yet kingdom, meaning we taste it now, but not all the time. We still live, we're in a contested world. There's a battle of light and dark in the creation we inhabit. So we get some of the kingdom now and we get the corruption of a sin infected world now too. But when the kingdom fully comes, God pours out a great and heavenly yes over every prayer like a purifying fire that is the uniting force between <laughs> heaven and earth and the restoration of all things. That's the biblical story. And, and so yeah. what is our role in between? Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Yeah. Keep on knocking. This is the way the kingdom comes. Amen. Ooh, I love that. It was and thank you. That concludes this episode. It's just so good. It's like uh-huh. we could just mic drop it right there. That's so beautiful. helpful. Well, we get one of your favorite prayers, Ray. I know. I love Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. I really a do. Favorite. I don't know why. So on on Tuesday's reading, day two, we get to read from I think both chapters, or the first two chapters of Nehemiah, or at least part of chapter two also. Mm-hmm. I love Nehemiah, and I love the writing of this narrative and the way that it's arranged. I love Nehemiah's prayer. And you'll get to read all of this on Tuesday. But I will tell you, like, part of me wants to read all of Nehemiah's prayer, and we can if we want to. But there's this one part, actually in chapter 2. I'll give some context for those of you listening who haven't read Nehemiah recently. He is in exile, and he is the cupbearer to the king, and he gets word that the city has been destroyed of Jerusalem, that the gates have been destroyed, the walls are down, and he is just trouble, like, I think it's called trouble and shame or disgrace, like, all of the wonder of what God had given them is just is crumbled. And so he is just so distressed for his people, for his land. And he prays like a corporate confession. He kind of confesses on behalf of Israel, thanks the Lord for who he is. He does this really beautiful prayer in chapter 1. But ultimately, he goes in chapter 2 before the king. The king recognizes that he's distressed, and the king's like, but you're not even like sick, so why do you look so sad? And there's this moment— In verse 2, where he says, I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when my city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? And this is the thing that I love. Mm -hmm. It says, So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. And then he went on to say his answer to the king, but like that in this half second, his account of this interaction with the king is that he's standing before the king, and the king's like, what is your request? And he says, so I prayed. 
And then I answered. And his request is, if it pleases the king, like, if I found favor with you, like, let me go. Let me go and rebuild the wall. And he has all these details, and it's really beautiful. And the king does grant his request. Yeah. But it's, it's I so, love that moment. I love it when we mark the exact same things. Yes. I underline that exact <laughs> same sentence or phrase. So I pray to the God of the heavens. Mm-hmm. And as you were just talking about it, Rachel, because that fascinated me too. Like, this is another kind of type of prayer, you know, this yeah. like kind of attunement, this constant mm-hmm. attunement to God that you described, Tyler. But also, it makes me, as you were talking, Rachel, I wondered is what comes out of his mouth to the king also prayer. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like that... Not prayer to the king, lowercase k. Right, yeah. right, right, right. But like, I'm going to voice what it is that I want, but I'm also, I know that the one who can give this to me... Is listening. ...is actually not the king. And yeah. That, yeah, anyway. Yeah. yeah, I think there's two things that catch my attention there. The first is that prayer is a reflex for Nehemiah. That's right, right. yeah. He, That's good. He's in a pressure-packed moment, and his instinct is to pray. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the great dreams and hopes for my life, is that as I age, prayer increasingly becomes a reflex, and that I I turn to prayer quickly, that when a situation presents itself, a situation that moves my emotions, right? It says that he was filled with fear. So his emotions are moved in a particular way. But for me, whether I'm filled with joy or fear or anxiety or hope or Mm -hmm. whatever, that I would turn my experiences into prayers reflexively so that my life becomes saturated in God's voice and that I live Mm -hmm. in response to God's voice. That catches my attention. And then the second thing is prayer is risky business. I, I think people forget this, but... We have an incarnational story, biblically, right? Jesus is an incarnational God who comes to live among us, and we then go on living incarnationally in the world as the body of Christ. That's like the summary of the New Testament. We are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world if we are His followers. Prayer is an incarnational act. And so Mm -hmm. it's risky because God will often call us to become our prayers. In fact, God sometimes stretches out his strong right hand and just supernaturally works in the world. That's something that actually happens in response to prayer. God also will do a here I am, send me to you in response to your prayers. So it's it's risky to, to have your heart broken for a people or a city the way Nehemiah does and then pray to God about it. Because it seems that what God indicated to Nehemiah in that prayer is yes, what is breaking your heart has broken mine as well, and I want you to go and build it back. Mm-hmm. And that is the risk of a lifetime for Nehemiah, if you know his story mm-hmm. and you understand it in context. So I would say that's the other thing that catches my attention is if you spend time with Jesus in prayer, hmm. he just might take you where he's going. And that will always lead you beyond your comfort zone. It will always yeah. involve some mixture of wide-eyed adventure and terrifying risk. And it will always result in the building up of your faith and the kind of stories that you grow old telling. Like that makes me, feels even like something like, this feels scary to say out loud. I want there to be more 
moment like that to happen more mm-hmm. because like that's the mm-hmm. kind of faith that I mm-hmm. want. That's the kind of faith I want to model for my kids mm-hmm. that I'm willing to risk that being the answer. I want more of those. I have one that comes to mind. I mean, that's exactly how we ended up being a family to our adopted son, Toby. We were praying as a family for God to give him a family. And the rest is history. <laughs> you know, that it was yeah. like, wait, what? And, mm-hmm. I, and I remember feeling a little bit, like, surprised and like, am I... Is this like a crazy thing to think? And like saying that to my husband, I'm like, we have a family. Like, what if we're his family? And not to make this about me, it's not about me, but just to have that kind of intimacy with the Lord or something that you care about that deeply. I want to care that deeply about all of the things that God cares about, you know? Yeah, and and good. we don't have the capacity mm-hmm. to, but... I think we're called to try. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what you shared is so important right there because it ties back to the definition of prayer you read at the beginning of talking and listening. And it's instructive for anyone who's hearing uh-huh. this podcast because when we talk about listening to the voice of God, I think people typically have like a very narrow paradigm where like, Three times in my life, I felt really called clearly by God to do something or had a heightened experience. But the way God normally works, this is what it feels like to hear God's voices. It feels like a thought coming into your mind that came from the outside, not from the inside, right? Uh You're just praying and you just start thinking, wait a minute, we have a family. (laughs) Is this nuts? That's what it feels like. To have a conversation with God as you're talking to God about an, a place on the earth that you see his kingdom needs to come mm-hmm. in this young man Toby's life, you know, mm-hmm. and then he begins to break your heart and then move you in response to your own prayer. That's conversation with God. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it is the best. And it is a proceed with caution conversation because <laughs> it's risky. Yeah. And I think, too, that it doesn't have to be about these, like, big life moments or decisions or trajectories. It also, you know, when I'm truly in conversation with the Lord about smaller, and I'm putting that in air quotes because it's not smaller at all, but, like, the example of we're just— feel like my husband and I feel like we're in like the thick of it in parenting right now. <laughs> we just, we didn't know. We didn't know that preteen and teenagers yeah. were like, oh, this is really hard. And so to that, like the rhythm of speaking and listening with God to how you described that, Tyler, of like, oh, I'm praying. So let's use the example of I'm like praying for my daughter. And as I'm praying, the Spirit reminds me of something that is true about Him Mm -hmm. or about Himself or about her. Mm -hmm. And so letting that shape, you know, because it's not what I expect. Like, I'm normally praying for some really practical things, Mm -hmm. like to bring Mm -hmm. friendships, to bring, like, meaningful experiences, um, reconciliation, you know, things like this, but to allow the Lord to shape 
me and my heart and my response to her and the situation and to be a conduit to her to help her see things that maybe she isn't seen yet in her journey with the Lord. And anyway, I'm, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but I think like what you're saying about these larger risky conversations helps me see something that's also true about the like everyday, like the things that I really do breathe prayers about throughout my day. That's right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that I, I would understand what you're describing there is, so yeah, you're praying for, man, there's tension in this friendship or whatever, right? Yeah. Then you are having an interaction with that person and you see there's an opportunity to be an extension of love or forgiveness. Yeah. And suddenly, because you were talking to God about it, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this could be, this could be a door God's creaking open to answer the prayer, not just by miraculously making the friendship mended, but by inviting me and empowering this small act to somehow be communicated as love to this other person in a way they can receive. And by participating with God, I get to see this prayer answered. Yeah. 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 It's so encouraging and convicting. I know we have very little time left, and we didn't anticipate that we would get through all of the days of this week in this episode, just because the topic and just wanting to just really get to yeah. well, have a conversation about it. Yeah, and that isn't the point. I mean, the point is for us to get excited about what we're going to read, and I am like personally my, I excited. Am excited. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I want to actually turn the page backward to the spread in the in the Sherry's True Study Book pages 20 and 21, it's this kind of look at types of prayer. And so we, you know, in the study book, we have, you know, confession, then oath, imprecation, petition, lament, praise. Tyler, I would love to, like, talk with you a little bit about this. One of the things, another thing that I know, I believe from your book, one of the things that you have shared is that you want— men and women to understand confession, not as guilty wallowing, but as, and I'm quoting you, but as the triumphant waving of a victory flag. Mm. Like I saw that line, I loved it so much. And as we talk about the types of prayer, the confession, the oath, the praise, the petition, when we talk about confession and when you frame it that way, help us know what you're talking about when you're saying, like, I want to shift the understanding of confession. Yeah, let me frame it in the basics of the biblical story. Adam and Eve's response to sin in Genesis 3 is to hide and cover with fig leaves. The entire story of the Old Testament law is the fact that we cannot reclaim holiness on our own. Holiness just meaning rightness before God. And the way that I experience my lack of holiness, like experientially, is there's a gap between my intention and my action that I can never entirely close. Like the type of Mm -hmm. father I intend to be, the type of husband I intend to be, the type of friend I intend to be, the type of pastor I intend to be, there's always a gap between that and who I actually am. And hopefully over the course of my life, the gap gets narrower But the truth is, it's always humblingly wide. Uh And because Jesus did not abolish the law, but fulfilled it in his life, death, and resurrection, he turned hiding into the only scheme the enemy has left to keep me in shame or sin. 
And so that means that to be righteous biblically, like the biblical understanding of righteousness is to strip myself of fig leaves over and over and over and over and over again, to confess over and over and over and over and over again. And that is what Jesus redefined as righteousness. It's not now go live a perfect life. It's now do not fall back into the illusion that you have to hide because you are who I have reclaimed you to be. And to not confess is to hide. And if you've never had a regular practice of confession, then a start just by confessing to God in prayer is a great place to start. But ultimately, the type of confession we see throughout church history as so powerful involves community as well. And, yeah. and not to everybody, like, you know, it's not responsible to just go around airing your dirty laundry to every last person, but to have like a trusted community in your life mm-hmm. who believes in who you are, who God's made you to be and who you're becoming, that you undress yourself of your fig leaves, to use the figurative language from Genesis, in front of again and again and again, that's part of your restoration because they can remind you who you are. And so confession is actually a victory march in our tradition and in our story. We have a story, and that's how confession gets redefined in our story. And so we have to understand confession as like the keys to the cell that we continually walk back into and just walk out and be free and be free and be free and never get tired of, of stepping out into that freedom because that's how we get free. And the enemy's only deception is to trick us into that action. That confession is shameful rather Mm. than victorious. I love that. I love thinking about that. We're just locking ourselves into a cell. Wow. Okay. I really like that. And scripture is riddled with assurances of our pardon and Mm -hmm. to go back to the word and be assured again and again because we need that assurance but to instead to begin with like i love tyler that you're not going like you're not pushing confession aside instead of you're hoisting it up and you're going confessing is the way to declare our victory over the enemy because we've already Mm -hmm. been forgiven and so we get to name those things and it's not because we're proud of our sin but we're proud of who has already forgiven us yeah i mean psalm 32 yeah describes Mm -hmm. like you know when your sin is hidden you're wasting away i think and then but then i confess Uh yes But when I confess, there's like a freedom and a joy. The same thing in Psalm 51, the famous Psalm of Confession. There's that line at the end, may the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's right. It's like God may may like the place of conviction, which feels first like a crushing bowing down, result in joy. Why? Because I know who you are. That changes everything about who I am. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I'm so thankful for the Psalms, and we don't spend a ton of time in the Psalms in this study because we're just looking at narratives, but I'm thankful for the Psalms because of the way that they just so clearly demonstrate things like lament and confession and all in all of these types of yeah, prayer. Yeah. I'm really excited for you all to read these narratives this week. I think you're going to be encouraged, especially with the way, Tyler, that you have framed this for us. This is such a wonderful 
framing conversation and invitation into reading these examples of prayer in Scripture and to understand mm-hmm. more about prayer and about who it is that we're praying to mm-hmm. and His unchanging nature. You're going to read, I mean, day four, we read Hannah's prayers. And I love this story. Mm-hmm. Keep Be on the lookout for the types of prayer in that reading day. It mm-hmm. is so beautiful. I mean, at one point she's praying, she describes it as praying from the depth of her anguish and resentment. Mm-hmm. How about that? Wow. Yes. And wow. then we read her prayer of rejoicing. And of course, the the circumstances have changed, but the circumstances are not the focus of that prayer. They're not. <laughs> of her triumphant right. prayer. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really excited for you guys to read these. Keep an eye on the the day titles, because the day titles are instead of being titled like what we're about to, the narrative that you're you're reading for the day, they are reminders of who God is uh-huh. all the time, not uh-huh. just in the story uh-huh. that you're given, but all the time. Uh-huh. And so I found those really helpful and compelling to you. It's going to be a good week of Bible reading, Rachel. That's right. That's right. Oh, man. Okay. Well, Tyler... I wish that we had another hour. I do. I know. I know. Like, can we just stay on? Because I have so many, like, so many more questions that I want to ask. <laughs> it's okay. We'll just go back and read. We'll yeah. read some more. Yeah, y'all, y'all pick up the. Like we said in the intro, his book "Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools" it released last month in October. Still hot off the press, in my opinion. Yes. I like it'll be linked in our show notes at shereadstruth.com slash podcast. You'll be able to find it there as well as some other details. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been really lovely to chat with you both. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. Listen, next week we'll be back with Mark Batterson for week two. I mean, two. I don't know if I can handle this one two punch that it's we've gonna got be, going here. It's going to be a good week be next good. week as well. <laughs> But until next week, Tyler, what do we tell our friends? Keep opening your Bibles. Mm-hmm.